And uh, we're going to start off the day with Dr. David Pariser. Uh, he's a professor in the Department of Dermatology at Eastern Virginia Medical uh, School in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, he's also the senior physician at Pariser Dermatology, which ha employs 10 dermatologists and 7 PAs and one nurse practitioner. So we have to thank him for that. He obtained his undergraduate degree at uh, Penn and uh, his MD degree from the Medical College of Virginia and trained uh, as a dermatology resident in Florida at the University of Miami. Um, he's uh, been quite active in the affairs of the AAD and he's uh, served on over 100 committees, was an officer and board member of the Academy for 14 years and uh, was the president in the 2009-2010 uh, year. He's also published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and uh, we'd love to introduce him. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, and good morning, everybody. I guess we're starting a little early, so uh, I'll uh, go slow with this, and we'll have time for interaction if we, if we want to. Appreciate the opportunity to, to be here, and I, I would think this is kind of an unusual topic for the first talk in the morning to talk about sweating. When, uh, well, of course, here in D.C., those of you who arrived yesterday before the storm came through, when it was 102 on my, the, the uh, thermometer on my car, uh, I can understand that. But one of the reasons why I'm interested in sweating, and I'll, I'll say this several times, is that people with hyperhidrosis, excessive sweating, have the worst quality of life as measured by the Dermatology Life Quality Index, a standard measurement. They have the worst quality of life of any disease that dermatologists treat. And furthermore, when we treat these patients, the change, the improvement that we see is a greater change improvement in quality of life than any other thing we do, any other thing we do. And that includes treating the worst psoriasis with biologics. It includes treating people with the worst acne with Accutane. And so I will say this probably three times before my talk is over. Treating people with excessive sweating improves the quality of life more than anything else that dermatologists do. And the treatment of patients who have hyperhidrosis, who have excessive sweating, is a perfect treatment for the doctor-PA-patient interaction, the team approach of patient care. And I'll, and I'll try to emphasize that as we get on to it. Okay, so it's not advancing the slides. Somebody help me with that. Okay, slide problems in the back. Not advancing. Is anybody home in the back? Okay. <clears throat> okay, so there's somebody advancing for me. Thank you. This is my uh, conflict of interest statement since this is a continuing education event. Uh, I have been an investigator in uh, with clinical trials for botulinum toxin, which is one of the treatments that we'll talk about. I'm a founding board member and the current secretary and past president of the International Hyperhidrosis Society which is a uh, educational event for physicians and others that, uh, receives, that does receive commercial support. I don't have any proprietary interest uh, in any products being discussed today, and we will be talking about off-label uses. Okay, so we're gonna have trouble with the slides, looks like. I can't get it to go forward. Somebody needs to help me with, get this fixed. Am I using the wrong button? All right, well, <clears throat> this is what I talked about earlier, the uh, list of the DLQI, the Dermatology Life Quality Index scores for patients with various uh, relatively serious dermatologic conditions. Hyperhidrosis of the palms, followed by underarm hyperhidrosis, 
have the highest DLQI scores and therefore the worst quality of life, more so than eczema that's bad enough to be hospitalized for, than psoriasis that's bad enough to be hospitalized for, and you can read the list. Okay, what are we gonna do about the slides here, guys? All right, I don't think, is there anybody in this room who's old enough to remember 1960 presidential election other than me? Um, okay, well, in 1960, uh, Richard Nixon ran against uh, John Kennedy for president. And uh, Nixon wouldn't wear makeup, and Kennedy wore makeup. This was the first televised presidential debate, debate. And Nixon was sweating through the whole presentation. And he was sweating, and he looked grubby. And that's one of the reasons why he lost. So arguably, uh, excessive sweating affected the 1960 presidential election. All right, next slide. You're going to have to change it for me. Um, here's somebody who did get elected, president of the United States. But doesn't that just look grubby? I mean, do you want to be this person? Next one. Uh, <clears throat> continuing along with world leaders who are sweating, Tony Blair. Next one. Uh, everybody recognizes Vladimir Putin, the uh, former president of the Soviet Union. He's under arm sweating, and the slides are a little burned out here on the one that I'm looking at. Um, does anybody know who this woman is? Well, this is Angela Merkel. She's the chancellor of Germany. And here she is walking down the red carpet in her black tie dress with a big sweat stain under her arm. Not really nice for a world leader to have. Next slide. Couldn't find a picture of underarm sweating for uh, Barack, but if you show the next one, uh, I did find one of Michelle. Um, and by the way, if, you, if you're interested in seeing um, sweat rings under, under people's arms, uh, there's a website called celebritysweating.com. And you can go to this website, enter your favorite celebrity's name, and you'll see pictures of them with underarm sweating. Okay, so exactly what is hyperhidrosis? What is excessive sweating? Um, and this in, in simple definition, having trouble with this clicker here, go back, please. Simple definition, it's sweating that's more than is required to maintain normal, fit, the normal function of sweating. Well, what is the normal function of sweat? Normal function of sweat, why do we sweat? We sweat to regulate our body temperature. We sweat so that when water is put on the skin from the sweat glands, as it evaporates, it cools the body. That's the main, main purpose of sweating. It has a little bit to do with electrolytes, but it basically re regulates, regulates heat. And that's why we sweat when we're hot, physically hot. That's why we sweat when we're, when we're exerting. Uh, ourselves physical exertion, and then also the sweating under stress is part of the, uh, the, the, the nervous reaction, which we'll talk about as being one of the reasons why people have hyperhidrosis. Next one. So there are um, several types of hyperhidrosis, and what we're going to talk about today is, is it's what's defined as primary focal hyperhidrosis. These, this is excessive sweating in local areas that's not associated from some other cause. Most commonly, excessive sweating is, of, is in the hands, it's on the feet, it's on the axilla, it's in the face, forehead, and scalp, but it can be almost anywhere in the body. Inframammary, inguinal, different areas are all subject to, having, uh, be, to being problems with focal primary hyperhidrosis. <coughs> Excuse me. Secondary hyperhidrosis, on the other hand, is usually generalized sweating, or sweating in multiple areas all over the body and that's usually due to something else. It can be due to infections, it can be due to certain diseases, it can be due to tumors, uh, and there, are, there is a long, long list, <coughs> excuse me, a long, long list of reasons why people have excessive sweating from, for secondary reasons. Um, I'm gonna recommend a website to you 
It's sweathelp.org. Write this down because I don't have it on any of the slides. Sweathelp.org. It's, it's the homepage of the International Hyperhidrosis Society, which is a nonprofit educational uh, entity that does patient education, physician education, press and lay public education. There's also a physician finder uh, on there. You can enter any zip code in the country or any city in the world and get the names of uh, physicians who have expressed an interest in treatment of patients with hyperhidrosis. Also on that website are lots of tools, and one of those is a list of all the medications that have ever been uh, shown to produce secondary hyperhidrosis, of all the diseases and tumors that can possibly produce secondary hyperhidrosis. So when you have a patient who presents with that <coughs> and you want to work them up, think about uh, looking, using this website as a, as, a, uh, uh, as a resource. So this is the uh, sort of consensus diagnosis. How do you diagnose primary focal hyperhidrosis? Well, okay, so it's a patient who has so sweating in a localized area or, or more than one localized area, which is bilateral, same on both sides, which uh, impairs the daily activities. So we hear all kinds of stories about people who have excessive sweating in their underarms, how they use maxi pads in their shirt or they stuff paper towels in their shirt or they buy three of the same shirts so they can change in the middle of the day and their coworkers don't know that, they're, that they've had to change. Uh, people who will use all kinds of things in their shoes to absorb sweat. Uh, folks who, who have all kinds of coping techniques so that their hands aren't sweaty. Uh, one common one is, you know, is uh, social circumstances. Shaking hands is a real problem at a, at a cocktail party. So if you always hold a wet, cold drink in your hand and you always keep it up in your hand and then just when you have to shake someone's hand, you let go of the drink and shake, then they think it's the wet, cold hand. It's not the, the drink. Um, constant wiping, always wear black, where, where sweating affects what, what you do in the morning. And somebody gets up in the morning and says, okay, what am I gonna have to do today to manage the sweat that I'm gonna have? Another criteria is this frequency of at least one episode per week. And actually, the people who truly have hyperhidrosis, it's every day, it's not just once or twice a week. Another characteristic is early age of onset, starting earlier than age 25. Now, Palmer hyperhidrosis in hands often starts in children. And sometimes the very first incidence of that is when mom is taking the, ba the toddler to preschool and is holding the kid's hand, and wow, that's a sweaty hand. That sometimes it'll occur that, in that young an age for Palmer hyperhidrosis. There's a pediatric dermatologist <clears throat> who's on the board of directors of our society, and she thinks that um, hyperhidrosis can actually be spotted in some patients in infancy. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of what they call these sweathead babies, you know, babies whose heads sweat. This pediatric dermatologist, a friend of mine, thinks that, that, that those are, kids are gonna develop hyperhidrosis when they get older. Positive family history, over two-thirds of people who have uh, primary focal hyperhidrosis, there's a family history of it. And I bet you it's really even more than that because excessive sweating is not the kind of thing that people sit around the family dinner table talking about. And I can relate to you a patient, <coughs> excuse me, teenage girl I had one time who was sitting on my exam table and I asked the teenager uh, who has had excessive axillary sweating, anybody else in your family have it? The teenager says no. And the mom's sitting in the chair and she says, well, honey, I, I really have never told you this, but I've had sweating all my life. I've been dealing with this all my life. And the girl looks at her mother and says, Mom, why didn't you tell me? You know, God, we could have talked about this. She says, well, and actually, it isn't just me, it's Grandma, too. So if you really ask hard enough or find out hard enough, there's, there's a family history in most of these. And a very characteristic finding of primary focal hyperhidrosis 
is cessation of sweating during sleep. So if somebody says they have night sweats, they're probably not, they probably don't have primary focal hyperhidrosis. Night sweating, of course, everybody thinks of tuberculosis and other infections as being, and it's night sweating being a primary symptom. But cessation during sleep is characteristic but not always present. Okay, well, <clears throat> you can actually measure how much sweat comes out of somebody's underarm through a technique called um, gravimetric measurement. And bottom line is, um, men sweat, sweat about twice as much volume as women, and people with hyperhidrosis sweat about four times more than people who don't. Okay, <clears throat> so this is a slide that shows the prevalence of hyperhidrosis in the United States, axillary hyperhidrosis only. One and a half percent of the population. So two of you in this room, just by chance, will have axillary hyperhidrosis. And 10% of those have, will have an intolerable condition that always interferes with their daily life. And 21% have barely tolerable axillary hyperhidrosis. So this is a real problem for lots of people. Total number of who have, this is just axillary in the slide here, but people who have palmar plantar hyperhidrosis, if you add them all together, it's about 3% of the population, about the same amount as people who have psoriasis. And it's about a 50-50 distribution of male versus female who have it. But I'll tell you that females generally are more likely to come in for treatment. Somehow it's a little more acceptable for men to sweat. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of measurement of quality of life for people with hyperhidrosis. These are some of the things that when you ask in, in open-ended questions, how does this bother you? Well, embarrassment when shaking hands is the number one thing. People who have to shake hands for their job, people who hold hands in church, people who have to deal with the public. This is the number one problem is sweaty hands. Frequent clothing changes, I mentioned that. Difficult in writing. Uh, there been, you will find that uh, uh, school kids will mess up their papers. The teachers will think they're sloppy. They'll make them do their work over again. But they're, they're, particularly, by the way, if you're left-handed and when you write, you're, you're writing, moving your hands over your writing, uh, it, does, it tends to smear. It's messy. Uh, I've had people who have, have shorted out computer keyboards from excessive palmer sweating. Had a policeman one time who couldn't fire his weapon because his hands were so slippery that he had trouble getting it out and firing, firing his weapon. Maceration and secondary infection can be a problem, particularly axillary and inguinal and inframammary, but that's not always the case. And I'm surprised sometimes how much water there can be in the axillary vault before a secondary infection and maceration occurs. Dropping glass objects. I had a mother one time who dropped her baby. Her hands were so sweaty. Um, destruction of shoes. Frequent chain dry cleaning bills are unbelievable trying to get those sweat rings out of their armpits. And, and anything else. Musical instruments, any kind of fine work. A pair, a pair of somebody's shoes that got ruined from the uh, sweatiness that, does, that leached through. So if you look at <clears throat> quality of life parameters and from the... Uh, from you know, controlled studies, verified studies, loss of confidence, depression, change in activities, frustration with activities, missed events, and uh, less leisure time. Uh, these are real significant issues for people. Okay, so primary focal hyperhidrosis is easy to diagnose. There's very little workup you need to do. You need to be sure it's symmetric. You need to be sure uh, that it meets those criteria that, that I mentioned, that it's not secondary to some other cause. And that's the vast majority of the patients that we, that we see. So once you've made the diagnosis, what are the treatments? This is where we're, we're all really interested. How do we help these people? And this is a list of some of the treatments which I will go over for you in the next hour or so. 
we have, we have plenty of time for this since we started early. We'll start off with the non-invasive treatments, and these are basically topical antiperspirants, other topical agents. We'll talk about iontophoresis. We'll talk about systemic treatment, systemic medications. Then we'll move into the minimally invasive treatment, which basically are botulinum toxin injections, an amazingly effective treatment for hyperhidrosis. And then we'll, we'll end up with some surgical approaches, both local surgical, and we'll talk a little bit about ETS, sympathectomy, uh, which is uh, something that, we're, that uh, we'll want to talk about a little, a little bit more in detail. And then actually after that, <clears throat> we'll talk about some of the practical aspects of incorporating hyperhidrosis treatments into your practice, some of the issues about billing and coding, and the practice management issues around this disorder. Okay, let's first talk about antiperspirants. All right, I got a question for you. How many of you got up this morning, took a bath or shower, and put on an antiperspirant? Okay, hands down. How many of you put, down, put on an antiperspirant last night? Good. How many of you didn't raise your hands for either of those? Okay, well, some don't use antiperspirants. Actually, 99 point something percent of the U.S. population uses antiperspirants, which is way different. I was just, uh, last week was in Korea at the World Congress of Dermatology talking about hyperhidrosis, and when I asked that same question to a worldwide audience of people who are not Americans and mostly even not Europeans, because this was in Asia, um, over half the, 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 uh, the room doesn't raise their hands at all. So antiperspirant use is not common in Asia, Africa, Middle East areas, and less common in Europe even than it is here in North America. Any case, the topical antiperspirants that we, that we all use, and I'm gonna explain to you why you ought to be putting your antiperspirant on at night, I'm gonna be put in a few minutes. We all use, these are, these are all based on aluminum or zirconium salts. They're very widely used, pretty inexpensive, generally non-toxic, but they can be irritating, and that's the limitation of the use. And even the prescription kind of topical antiperspirants, such as Drysol, aluminum chloride, hexahydrate, can, the limitation on the strength of those is irritation. And I'll tell you in a minute why they, they, they irritate. Now, there's also no reason why you can't use an antiperspirant on areas of the body other than the underarms. You can use antiperspirant on your hands or your feet or your, under your breasts or in your groin or any place you're sweating excessively, except that some of the, the preparations are designed to be used in the underarms. So some of the soft solids or stick type or even the sprays are just not really the nicest thing to have your hands greased up with, which is why some of the prescription type agents such as uh, uh, Drysol are effective uh, because they're clear liquids and they don't, they're not greasy. So how do antiperspirants work? Well, here's how they work. <clears throat> this is a diagram. If you consider this, the, the yellow is the eccrine sweat duct. This is the surface of the skin. So you've got, you got the eccrine sweat duct and you've got the surface of the skin. Think of the little, the little dots. This is the active ingredient in the uh, antiperspirant that's applied externally to the skin. So then what happens is that the water from the sweat gland comes up into the, uh, on, toward the surface of the skin and dissolves away some of the active ingredient out of the vehicle that it's in, and a chemical reaction occurs here, which I'll talk about in just a second, and it actually forms a physical plug, a physical plug in the sweat gland, plugs it up, and then through a feedback mechanism, the sweating actually stops. If the feedback mechanism doesn't stop, you get what's called miliaria crystallina. Have you ever seen that? Little, what looks like little water dots on the skin, that's when sweat glands get physically blocked. So this is how, this is how antiperspirants work. So the chemical reaction that occurs there that I mentioned, you have the, uh, the, the metal 
in this case aluminum or, or zirconium, chloride, and you have water, OH, and so the chemical reaction is very simple. You replace the, the, the metal with the, with the, and the base with the chloride, and you end up with this metal salt, but look what else is formed. The byproduct is hydrochloric acid. That's why the stronger antiperspirants irritate. It's not because the preparation itself is irritating, it's because as they're working, the byproduct is, an, is acid formation. And that's what irritates and that's what limits the strength of the antiperspirants. Okay, so the active ingredient is released from the vehicle, combines with the water in the sweat, goes down into the duct where there also is a pH change and that, that uh, drives this chemical reaction as well so to, to form the precipitate and that's causes, uh, that causes the blockage. So, there's some, there, so there are some pearls about antiperspirants now. Over the last couple of years, a new generation of topical antiperspirants has come on the marketplace. And they, they work with a more complex salt, usually this aluminum zirconium trichlorohydrex, which is a much more complicated chemical salt that precipitates more efficiently. There are several brands of it around, and here's how you can tell which they are. Generally, they have the word clinical in them, clinical strength, clinical protection, or in the case of the Old Spice, professional, but they look a little different. There's two other ways you can tell. One is they come in a box. So on the, when you go to buy antiperspirant in the store, you see on the shelves, many of the, uh, the preparations are just on the shelf, with, with, they're not in a box, and some of them are in a box. If they're in a box, they're gonna be one of these new generation ones. The other way you tell is they cost about twice as much as the standard ones. So instead of being three to five bucks a box, or a unit, they're five to seven dollars a unit in the box. So those are, this is something to recommend to anybody and for all of you for your own personal uh, grooming if you feel you're, you sweat more than you'd like to. Uh, try the clinical strength antiperspirants. Okay, now what I didn't say, I need to say by the way, is the difference between an antiperspirant and a deodorant. Okay, so antiperspirants have active ingredients in them, the aluminum chloride or one of its the aluminum salts. They physically have, they have a physical function on the skin making those plugs in the sweat, sweat glands, as I, as I said. And they may or may not have fragrance in them, they, they often do. But a deodorant has no active ingredients. A deodorant is simply a fragrance. So those of you who like to, in the morning, take a shower, put something on that has a nice smell to it, can use your antiperspirant at night. When you take a shower in the morning, you don't wash out the plugs, you don't wash off the effect. In fact, the effect of them lasts for several days from more than just one application. You really don't even need to use it every night. But if you want to have something nice smelling in the morning, put on a deodorant after you take your shower in the morning, just for the, just for the, for the, for the fragrance. So that's the difference between antiperspirants and deodorants. And I guess I actually should back up and talk about, well, why do we need, why do we need two different things? What's going on there? Well, there are two different kinds of sweat glands in the armpits. We're talking about eccrine sweat glands, the water sweat glands. That's the whole thing about hyperhidrosis. But there's another whole set of glands called the apocrine glands. The apocrine glands are the ones that they, they don't make water sweat, they make a, an oily substance and that's the odor. That's what body odor is in general, is from the apocrine gland secretions. Apocrine glands, um, are not affected by these aluminum and other antiperspirants. You can't stop apocrine gland sweating. You really can't stop that much by anything, but uh, except by washing off the, the, uh, the, the oily substance that they produce. 
So that's the difference between apocrine glands, eccrine glands, difference between deodorants and antiperspirants. Everybody got that? Okay, so here's my sort of pearls on, on aluminum chloride and other antiperspirants. And this is for normal people or for your people who have hyperhidrosis. Put your, put your, your agent on at night. Why at night? Because that's when you sweat the least. And that, remember what I told you, if you have hyperhidrosis, you often will even not sweat at night at all. So that's the, that's the time you want to put it on, because if you put it on in the morning, when, you're, when there's water on the surface, and that's whether it's water from a shower or water from sweat, that chemical reaction that forms the, the, the salt and the acid, that chemical reaction is going to occur on the surface of the skin, not down in the plugs, and you won't make efficient plugs. So put your, your um, antiperspirant on at bedtime to the dry skin, dry, 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 dry. And if somebody has hyperhidrosis that they really have trouble drying it, blow dry it before you put it on if you have to, to get it dry. And then wash it off in the morning because if there's a residue on the surface of the skin in the morning and you take a bath, that you're gonna put water on there and it's gonna make acid. And it's not gonna make, it's not gonna, it's not gonna enhance the effect and you're not gonna wash the plugs out. So wash off in the morning and use it nightly until, it's, uh, until uh, you get some decrease in sweating and then you don't have to do it every night. Now, the package insert for Drysol, aluminum chloride hexahydrate, which is what we often will start tra treatment with, the package insert says to put it on under occlusion and wrap it with plastic. Well, that makes no sense mechanistically why you should do that. And all it does is it promotes sweating in an occlusive environment and makes it irritate more. So I don't know why the Drysol package insert, rec recommends occlusion, but I absolutely recommend no occlusion for people who have, uh, who have this. You know, occlusion in general is used to hydrate the skin and make it for better penetration of topical agents. But you don't want this stuff penetrating into the skin. All you want it to do is go down the sweat ducts, and you want those ducts to be as inactive as possible. So by occlusion, it, you really tend to stimulate it more. Now, there are some other things that have been used uh, historically, and there really is no current modern medical use for these agents, but I do want to mention them just for completion. Uh, actually, when I mentioned these last week in, in uh, Korea, some people say, well, in the, in the rest of the world, you know, we use glutaraldehyde all the time for uh, treatment of hyperhidrosis. Well, that's fine, but that's a really irritating substance. And all of these agents, formaldehyde, glutaraldehyde, tannic acid from tea, by the way, and that's another home remedy you'll hear sometime, tea bags under the arms. Uh, and there actually is some effect from these agents, um, fairly minimal compared to other things that we have now, but these agents can, uh, can work. And, and the, pro the way they probably do is they just denature the protein. They just kind of gum up the duct, they make those plugs just by, by superficial blockage of denatured proteins. So the, some of these things can work, but there, there's really very little uh, reason to use those anymore. Now I'm going to talk a little while, in a little while about glycopyrrolate, which Robinol is the brand name, systemically administered drug for treatment of excessive sweating. But uh, uh, there is a small case series where people have used topical glycopyrrolate, applied topically. And although there's no commercial preparation that's available topically, uh, there's a, a very active website, pharmacy.ca, and it's .ca because it's in Canada, which makes up what they call secure or Robinol wipes. They make a, a, a liquid solution, and you can get it, you can order whatever percentage you want, half percent to three percent, aqueous solution, and they put it in a little disposable towelette, single-use towelette, and it's packaged in a little foil wrapper. And uh, you can order these on the internet, by prescription. And some people feel as though this is helpful, you know, apply them topically, using it topically. 
The issue, though, is that if you use the higher strength ones and use them frequently, you get some of the, second, of the side effects that you would achieve from uh, ingesting robinol or glycopyrrolate systemically. So the question is, how is, this, is this stuff working locally, or is it really working because it's being absorbed and working systemically? And we don't know the answer to that. I always wanted to do a study where I would take somebody who has, who has underarm sweating, take these towelettes and rub them on their stomach every day, and see if the underarms can stop sweat. That way you would know it would be systemic, but nobody's ever done that study. In any case, it's something to try in some patients. So to conclude on the topical part of this, the new anti topical antiperspirants should be part of uh, the, the first, sort of first ladder, first rung of the treatment ladder in people who have hyperhidrosis. But irritation is the problem and lack of efficacy in people who really have lots of trouble. And the topical agents can be other uh, adjuncts to other treatments. And a real practical reason for using topical, in addition to the fact that it does, actually does work sometimes, is that virtually every insurance company is not going to authorize payment for a more expensive treatment, such as hyper, uh, iantrophoresis or botulinum toxin injections, uh, unless you've tried and failed with topical agents. Okay, how many of you in this room know what iantrophoresis is? Anybody know? Great. How many of you actually use it in your practice? Perfect. Okay. Well, I hope that after this you'll get have a better, a better uh, feel for this. Iantrophoresis is a physical therapy modality, and basically what it, what it is, is a, it's a treatment for, for polymer hyperhidrosis. And I don't know if we can turn the lights down a little bit. I think we might be able to see these slides a little bit better, but because the projectors are burning out the, burning out the lights here. So what iontophoresis is, it's, it's used for, for many things in medicine, but for, for our purpose, it's basically making an ionized substance pass through the skin using electric current. And for, uh, for, for, um, for hyperhidrosis treatments, we use plain old iontophoresis with tap water, just regular water out of the sink unless you live in an area where the water is very soft, where there's no minerals, and I'll talk about that in a minute. You can use uh, antifreezes to deliver anticholinergic drugs, but we, for most of the time, we're using this strictly for uh, treatment of, of hands and feet uh, with just plain tap water. There are two devices approved in the United States, for FDA approved for treatment of hyperhidrosis, the Dryonic device and the Fisher device. Uh, the next slide shows a couple of those. And I really would like to get the lights turned down in the room if we could a little bit so that we can see some of these slides better. Uh, particularly as I get onto the clinical stuff, it's gonna, not, not gonna show up as well. Um, the Dryonic is a little battery-operated uh, clamshell-type device. Any of you seen the Dryonic device? It opens up, it has two little pads, and you apply it. Um, the, the Fisher unit, the Fisher MD1A iontophoresis unit is, uh, is much more effective. If you're going to recommend or, or perform iontophoresis on patients, this is the, the Fisher unit is the one that we'd like to, we really like to recommend. These two are other ones that are not available in the US right now. They're, they're available in Europe. You can order them online, but technically speaking, they're unapproved in the US. So I'll, I'll go into the details of how the treatment works, basically, but you can treat both hands. You see in the lower right there, both hands in a tray of water. Uh, you can treat one hand and one foot. One tray is on the floor, on the slide on the left, one, one hand in the, uh, uh, in the tray. And this is the treatment which uh, uh, patients can do themselves, and I'll go into the details in a second. Exactly how iontophoresis works, we're not sure. But we think it works the same way that topicals work, and that is by developing plugs in the sweat gland. And the reason why we think that is if you take somebody's hand who's had successful iontophoresis treatment, and you put on a piece of scotch tape to an area and strip it off and repeatedly put some on and strip it off, put it on, strip it off, you can strip off a couple layers of the epidermis and you get some of the plugs out. 
and you can see sweating returning in the area that you stripped it out. And it still stays dry in the rest of the hand. That's why we think it works by making plugs. But there have been some theories that uh, this has something to do with the, uh, some electrical cause uh, with interfering with the sympathetic nerve transition, transmission, or that it has something to do with pH changes. The fact of the matter is we don't really know. Antifreezes has been around for a long, long time. It's been around since 1952, with the first paper published by antiphoresis in treatment of hyperhidrosis. And basically, in this particular case, this particular study, 91% response rate. Uh, this was um, uh, not a, a modern study in, in how we would do a controlled, randomized, you know, placebo-controlled clinical trial, but anyway, it was an observational study. Fast forward into 2002, uh, 50 years later, uh, another similar study, but almost the same results, 81% reduction of sweating. Now, antiphoresis is not rocket science. It's a simple and easy procedure, but there are some adverse events that can occur. If you, for example, if you have some cuts on your finger or you've been picking your cuticles or something and you put your hands in the antiphoresis tray, you're gonna get a tingling or pins and needles, little type of sensation at the area of your cut or your, of your whatever has caused disruption of the skin. So just by putting a little bit of plain old Vaseline, petrolatum on that, uh, right over, over the cut, you avoid, you avoid that problem. It's kind of like a little stinging sensation. If you've ever taken a, a, one of those little nine volt batteries that have the two little plung, you put it up to your tongue, you get a little bzzz. Nobody's done that. Uh, that's what it feels like. So it's, a, it's a totally harmless, uh, slight, a little electrical tingle sensation. Sometimes there'll be, if you put your hands in the water, and you get, uh, you know, the water goes like, there's, there's a water line, and sometimes you'll get a little erythema around the water line. I've seen that once in a while. I've never seen vesiculation, blistering around from this, but it's reported. Uh, this is another more modern study, 20 patients. Again, that same sort of, of uh, same sort of, of improvement rate. You shouldn't do antiphoresis to people who are pregnant or who have pacemakers or who have metal implants in the current path. Well, what do I mean by that? So if you've got an artificial knee and you're just doing hands, that's fine because the current's going to go like this. But you shouldn't do that leg, that foot. Um, I don't know why people with, with seizure disorders shouldn't have iontophoresis, but that's, it's a labeled contraindication. And since it is, I would stay away from that. Maybe you don't want to do, any, do anything electrical that might affect the brain. So. Here's how we do it, kind of, this is the practical aspect of iontophoresis. Uh, we start off with treatments in the office. And we usually will try to do it three times a week. M uh, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever. Three times a week. And in our office, we do these over the lunch hour. We have one of our medical assistants hangs around, takes a different lunch hour, and, and uh, she does this. And we'll have several iontophoresis patients going during each lunch hour because it does tie up a room for a while. And uh, patients like to come during lunch hour because it's easy. So you put a little, a little uh, uh, Vaseline over the cuts, you put your hands in the, uh, in, in, the in the water bath, and generally we treat for 20 minutes three times a week. And after about three weeks, you're gonna know if this is gonna work or not. And if it is gonna work, then we will try to have the patient's insurance buy them their own machine. The cost of the machine is about 750 bucks. That's actually pretty cheap when you consider what it costs to do some of the other treatments particularly botulinum toxin injections, where one, one treatment session can cost that much. And usually if I have an insurance company that's giving me a hard time about not wanting to pay for somebody's antiphoresis, I'll say, well, if you don't want to do that, then we're going to do this botulinum toxin injection. It's going to cost way more, 
and we're going to have to do this over and over again. And then they, they say, hey, what was the name of that? Iontophoresis, what was that? We'll pay for that now. So you can often get insurance to pay for this. And patients can do their own treatments. The reason for having them come into the office to do it for several times, first of all, is to be sure that it works. But secondly, although it's not rocket science, showing them how to do this, getting the hands just right, telling them how to, how to manage the machine. You do have to advance the current slightly. You don't have to reverse the polarity. It's, it, it takes a couple of times to learn how to do it right. And if you just say, well, here's a prescription for the machine, go buy it online uh, and, and go use it, there will never be any success. The machine comes with no instructions, uh, although there is an instructional video you can buy, but actually doing a hands-on or actually hands-in uh, demonstration and being sure it works really does add to the efficacy of this. So what do you do if you're in an area of so-called soft water, where uh, in, there's not many minerals in the water, so the hydrophoresis really won't work? Well, very simple. Just put a teaspoon of basic baking soda or even table salt in the water, and that's enough minerals to make it work. So three to four weeks of three times a week treatments, you're going to know if it's going to work or not. Now, you can take glycopyrrolate, crush it up, and put it in the trays. And it actually does help. So if a patient is not, you know, they're getting a fair response but could do better, and they're, they're managing the treatment okay, they want to keep doing it, put a little glycopyrrolate, crush up some robinol tablets, actually two of the, of the uh, two milligram tablets in each tray per treatment, and it may help a little bit. Using the clinical strength antiperspirants in between treatments may help as well. And then when it, once you've got it under control, the patient can do this once a week at home. Now, I will tell you that taking these trays of water and balancing them on the floor and on the thing is not something that a lot of people end up doing on a long-term basis, frankly. They kind of burn out for this. And in some, it's not practical. You're a college student in a dorm, you're not gonna do this. Uh, if you have a you know, super, busy, you know, super busy mom who's, who's working, you may not have 20 minutes to do this three times a week. So it's not a practical treatment for everybody, but for those in, in whom it is and where it works, safe, easy, and pretty inexpensive, and hands and feet, great first treatment. Okay, so long history of, of, of working, very cost effective, um, and something we should all be familiar with if you're going to treat this. All right, <clears throat> let's talk about systemic treatment. Oral therapy, pills for sweating. So first thing to say is there's no FDA-approved treatments for hyperhidrosis with oral agents. All of, the, or, all of the oral agents that we use are agents which are designed for something else, but the reduction of sweating is a side effect. So we're using something for its side effect. And that, of course, means that there are going to be other effects, generally the primary effect of the drug, that may limit its use for, our, for the side effect that we're going to be treating. Well, in general, you're not going to want to treat somebody with just underarm or just hand sweating with systemic agents. But those who have widespread areas, who have compensatory sweating following surgery, which we'll talk about later, uh, or for those who have multiple areas, it's something to try. Um, success rate is not great because of the side effects. When I say the side effects, what I mean is the real effects of the medicines. All right, what do we use? What drugs am I talking about? Well, primarily, we're talking about anticholinergics, and I'll list some, some more of them for you in a minute and talk about which ones specifically we use and what, what the dosing is, because there's no approved uh, dosing for this. You can't look this up on Hippocrates. Um, it's the other effects, and although we're calling them side effects, it's the, uh, uh, the other effects, anticholinergic effects, that limit the use of these drugs. Dry mouth, urinary retention, constipation, and ocular issues. 
So of, of the ones which are most commonly used, the most commonly used one is glycopyrrolate or robinol. Second most commonly used is oxybutynin or ditropan. And we'll go into the details of setup dosing here in a minute. So this is a list of some of the anticholinergic side effects or anticholinergic effects. They're not really side effects. They are the effects uh, in the various organs systems. And so you, these are drugs where you do need a little bit of, of general medical history. You do need to know what other drugs people are on. You need, do need to know if they have any of these things. Okay, so glycopyrrolate. Why that one specifically? Well, it's a quaternary amine, and it's less lipid-soluble than some of the others. So theoretically, what that should mean, and I think does mean, is it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier as readily, and therefore uh, may have a little bit less of some of the side effects. So glycopyrrolate comes in one and two milligram tablets. And if you're going to use this for sweating, here's my recommendation for you. You start off with one milligram twice a day. One milligram in the morning, one milligram at night for a week. It's a very low dose. Patients probably won't see much of anything at that. If they don't, at the end of the week, still one milligram in the morning and two at night. And do that for the second week. At the end of the second week, two milligrams in the morning, two milligrams at night. And at the end of the third week, I want to see them back. Now, if at any one of those dose escalations, they develop enough improvement in the sweating without any of those side effects that I mentioned, then they can stay on that dose and that, that's where they go. If not much has happened on the two and two, then I will continue this escalation by adding one additional dosage each week till I get up to the maximum I've ever given anybody, and you can use one milligram or two milligrams, has been six milligrams a morning and six milligrams at night of Robinol. I think if I took that, I would be shriveled up into a raisin in about a day. But uh, people tolerate things. So slowly escalate. If there's a dose you can find that, is, that reduces the sweating enough without any of the anticholinergic side effects, that's fine. Um, okay, we talk this first. There seems to be a slide missing on oxybutynin, which is ditropan. Ditropan is one um, which, if it's a young person, a young teenager, even a child, I might want to use ditropan rather than, uh, than, than glycopyrrolate, only because ditropan is FDA approved for children with bedwetting. So it's, at least there's some safety data down to, I think it's age six. Uh, so that's the same sort of uh, thing. Now that comes in a five milligram tablet. You break them in half and start off five in the morning, five at night, uh, I mean half of the five in the morning, half of the five at night, and the same sort of escalation of you know, BID, I mean, yeah, BID for a week, then one in the morning, two at night for the second week, two and two, et cetera. Until, if you can get an effect, that's great. So glycopyrrolate, number one for most adults, oxybutynin, number two for most adults, and probably number one for, for children if you're gonna do one. Now I do wanna mention something about propranolol. Propranolol has a very specific usage in sweating. Uh, you, this is not one that you wanna use on any length of time because it's highly lipophilic and does give a lot more chance of getting some of the other anticholinergic side effects. And there are lots of reasons not to use propranolol, but if, they're, if it's okay to do, and here's some of those reasons why you don't want to use it, but if somebody can take propranolol, you can pretty much guarantee that about an hour after they take the dose, their sweating is going to stop for a short time, you know, a couple of hours. So if you've got somebody who's got a big event coming up, they've got a big job interview, and they've got to shake somebody's hand, and it's got to be dry. Or, you know, they're making a huge presentation for the first time in a, in a new job, and they don't want to have you sweating. You can do this. 
Um, and it's, but it's, it's a one-time deal. And you can do it, you know, you can repeat it, but it's not for, for occasional, occasional, I mean, it's only for occasional use. So you take this test dose, five to 10 milligrams, half an hour to an hour before the event, and I recommend that people try it as a test at some time when it's not before the event, just to be sure that it's gonna work and they're not gonna have any problems. So this is the sort of one-time fix. So who would I give anticholinergics in and who would I definitely not? So the ones who might you wanna give systemic treatment, multiple areas of involvement, generalized sweating, those craniofacial sweating people where other treatments maybe where you can't do antiphoresis, you can't stick your head in a tray of water. Um, and there are, although you can do botulinum toxin injections, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's a second line treatment for other therapies, and it's probably its main use is those who have compensatory sweating from ETS, which I'll talk about later, and which, uh, where, this, where it's generalized and there really isn't any other treatment. But there's some people which you probably shouldn't use any kind of anticholinergic on, and those are people who need to sweat. You know, your school athletes, you know, the, you know the old story about the football players, and they're not gonna tell the coach if they're ready to die from heat stroke, and you know, you have to sweat if you're physically active outside, if you're a school sport or you're an outdoor construction worker. And for children, I would think twice, but I, but I have used it in situations where the sweating is a, is a real issue. Specifically contraindicated, absolutely in glaucoma, uh, gastric emptying syndromes, and if there's any problem with urinary retention, because that's one of the side effects you don't want to start you don't want to throw somebody into real urinary retention from this. <clears throat> okay, let's shift gears now and talk about uh, botulinum toxin injections because this, the advent of botulinum toxin injections five or six years ago, um, actually it was approved in 2004, but it's been used since then, um, has revolutionized the treatment of hyperhidrosis and has really made, uh, made people with this condition come out of the woodwork to get this treatment because it's an, it's an amazingly effective treatment. Minimally invasive, approved in the United States for treatment of axillary hyperhidrosis only, but standard of care and uh, has it used for hands, feet, and other body areas. And we'll talk about, and I'll actually show you some videos in a minute about how this is done. Now there are two brands of botulinum toxin approved in the United States, Botox and Dysport. Now, this is a CME meeting, so we're not supposed to use brand names, but I'm gonna use the brand names anyway because there's a difference in the two, and I'm, not gonna, and I'm gonna mention both. There's also another botulinum toxin called Zeomin, that's the brand name for that. These are all botulinum toxin type A's. The generic name for Botox is Onobotulinum toxin A, and the generic for Dysport is Abobotulinum toxin A. But in any case, Dysport is, and I'm not, so rather than saying all those long words, I'm gonna use the brand names. Dysport is not approved for sweating. United States, or it is in Europe. Uh, Botox is the only thing approved. So I want to be sure that we're talking about, you know, that I, that I indicate for you what is off-label use. So what's the evidence for the effect of botulinum toxin? Okay, the, very, the large pivotal clinical trial, which I'll show you in a minute, really showed this was a highly effective treatment, extremely effective treatment, with a relatively long duration of effect. Now, maybe you don't think it's relatively long, but in the studies, only 43% of patients needed a retreatment in a year. In practical clinical use, what I tell people, if you're on a scale of one to 10, if you come in with a sweating of a 10, we're gonna do this injection on you, you're gonna be, be a zero or a one, you're gonna stay that way for four or five months, you're gonna be a two or three after five or six months, you're gonna be a three or a four after eight or 10 months, and then you're gonna come back, you're not gonna to wanna to be a 10 again. 
Patients are very happy with this treatment. It significantly improves their quality of life, but you gotta repeat it, and it's expensive. So this is a terribly burnt out slide, and I, I don't know if there's any way to turn down the, the amount of light on the projector, but if it's not, this is illustrating the starch iodide test, and I hope it's gonna show better in the video that I'm gonna put on here in a minute. But this is how you identify where the sweating is in the underarm. It's by, you apply regular, uh, regular iodine in the form of a betadine swab, let it dry, apply cornstarch, regular cornstarch from the grocery store, dust it on, and you wait a few minutes, and this black coloration is a chemical reaction that occurs where this, when the sweat's coming out of the sweat pores, and I'm gonna show you a video of it so you'll be able to see it, and hopefully it's gonna look better than this, than this does. These, uh, these projectors are overburning the slides here. Okay, so this was a study of the Dysport brand of botulinum toxin, a European study. And you can see that basically start, and this is the numbers are the milligrams of sweat. In fact, it's so bright, it was not even showing the laser pointer. Milligrams of sweat per five minutes. Uh, and if you just look under the column, the, the Botox, uh, the uh, Dysport botulinum went from 192 milligrams per five minutes to 24. Placebo went down, but nowhere near enough. And so um, that's, that's a study of, of the Dysport brand. You look again, another botulinum toxin brand, Botox brand, a European study. Look at the difference uh, from the first two sets of bars to the second set of bars where the blue is the uh, placebo. It did decrease some, but the active drug, obviously clinically significant, clinically meaningful as well as statistically significant difference in, a, in a one week of the amount of sweating. And in this particular study, went out through 16 weeks. Well, the US FDA required for the US studies a patient-reported measure of effectiveness. Because nobody in their, in their office is gonna do gravimetric testing and some of these more detailed uh, tests to uh, determine the effect of sweat. So this scale called the HDSS, or Hyperhidrosis Disease Severity Scale, was uh, developed for clinical trials for hyperhidrosis. And in any modern clinical trial now, since the approval of botulinum toxin in 2004, you will, you will see this scale used. So it's basically very simple. You ask the patient, how do you rate the severity of your sweating? And if they say, my sweating is never noticeable, it never interferes with my daily life, they get a score of one. If they say it's tolerable and sometimes interferes, they get a two. If it's barely tolerable and frequently interferes with daily activities, they get a three. And if it's intolerable and always interferes with their daily activities, they get a four. So that's the scale. And when we did, did the clinical trials on this, Patients had to start out with a three or a four, and they had to improve by two grades. So if they were barely tolerable and frequently interferes, they had to go to none. And if they were intolerable and always interferes, they had to get to at least the tolerable and sometimes interfere stage to be considered a success. So here are the ones who got the success. 75% of the patients got successes, and there's two dosing forms uh, that are there, 75 units and 50 units of the Botox brand. And you can see from the slide, which is again, terribly burnt out, and I apologize for this, it's way high, too much light coming through the slides. Um, the 75 and the 50 milligrams worked, uh, 50 units rather worked about the same. In sweat production, in redu in reduction of sweat, and in the uh, patient's evaluation of it. So I'm gonna try to play a video of this, but hopefully it's gonna work. Um, 
Okay, help me out. Get, help me. Would you click on this for me so the video will play, please? Okay, so well, you're not going to be able to see this because it's so burned out. But first of all, I'm going to apply. It's a regular betadine swab, and I'm just applying betadine to the uh, to the armpit. I'm going to let this dry thoroughly. It has to be completely dried. Uh, there can be no water on the skin. And then we're just dusting with a regular little shaker some plain old cornstarch out of the out of the grocery store. And um, I guess we're not going to get in, get this video any better. It really is a good video, but we're projecting poorly. Wiping off the extra um, starch, and boy, you can't see a thing there, can you? But if we watch this for a few minutes, well, I really apologize. There's those black spots that have come up. Um, need to get this projector fixed for subsequent uh, presentations. Any case, uh, that's the, that identifies the area that need to be treated. We're going to wipe off the remnants of the starch because you don't want to be poking needles through starch and driving starch into the skin and producing starch granulomas. But in any case, we've identified the area. We're going to mark uh, spots, injection sites, about every one and a half centimeters or so apart uh, in a grid fashion. And then we're going to inject our botulinum toxin. And we're going to put about two units of botulinum toxin approximately in each of those, right at each of those dots. And we're going to use a 30 gauge or smaller needle and try to get a deep dermal injection. Okay, so we're going to cover all those areas. And that's as easy as it is to it. No anesthesia is needed. This is a relatively painless procedure. And uh, people love it. They will come back and they will kiss your feet and they will be your patients forever when you, get their, when you stop their axillary sweating with this simple and easy procedure. Okay, let's move on. How, what do you treat, how do you treat palms? What about palms? All right, so uh, let me tell you that, again, the first treatment you should try for palmar hyperhidrosis is not botulinum toxin injections, it's iontophoresis. And um, when that doesn't work, botulinum toxin injections are effective and are the next thing you ought to do. So let's talk about what the evidence about that is. Now, although for axillary treatments, we have strong, double-blind, controlled clinical trials, high rate of evidence, we don't have as good evidence for hands and feet. But we have some. And there are some randomized trials, but they're relatively small numbers of, of, of trials with some relatively small numbers of patients. 19 patients, but 100% success in those. Looking at the gravimetric measurements, again, um, the slide is not projecting well, but you can see a significant decrease from the day zero to day one from, from and it's so bright it's not even showing the laser pointer, but uh, from that first bar to the second bar, uh, first bar to the second bar, you can see that it's, it's significantly improved. Not quite as much as the axillary, however. Patient's assessment as well. Another small, uh, relatively small study uh, showing effectiveness. Another small, relatively small study using small numbers um, of, of Botox, and I will tell you that the amount of Botox you need to treat the hands is way more than the underarms, and we'll go into the details about that in a minute. Uh, this particular one, 64 to 184 units, weird numbers, but uh, they got 15 out of 18 patients that it worked well for. Okay, now I'm going to show you in a minute here a video of how to do the hands, but before I show the video, what I want to say is the issue with hands is, is anesthesia. And you'll see in the video how we recommend doing anesthesia in a simple and effective way. So let's see if we can play this video. 
and I see what it works. Palms negatively impacts the quality of life of those burdened by the condition more than any other skin disease. The DLQI score, the Dermatology Life Quality Index, shows that palmar hyperhidrosis affects the quality of life more than even the most severe psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, or contact dermatitis. Treatment of patients with palmar hyperhidrosis improves patients' quality of life more than any other disease that dermatologists treat. For patients who fail treatment with topical agents and iontophoresis, the injection of botulinum toxin type A, known in the United States as Botox, is a relatively non-invasive and simple procedure to learn. The technique for Botox injections in the palm is similar to injections in other areas, such as the axilla, but for the palm, attention must be paid to anesthesia, since pain from injections is much more significant for the palm than it is for the axilla. Some patients may be able to tough it out with no anesthesia, but they are the extreme exception. Topical anesthesia with preparations such as Emla or Elamax are generally ineffective, due largely to the thickness of the stratum corneum of the palm. Vibratory anesthesia, using powerful vibrators to mask the pain, has been successful, but until recently, the gold standard for anesthesia has been the use of nerve blocks of both the ulnar and median and sometimes the radial nerve. A properly placed nerve block will render the hand completely anesthetic and will allow for the injector to carefully and precisely place the injections where needed with complete patient comfort. There is a low incidence of transient paresthesia after a nerve block and even rarer incidence of permanent nerve damage. If both hands are treated with a nerve block on the same visit, both hands will be useless for some times after the procedure and the patient will have to have assistance leaving the office. This video illustrates the use of cryoanesthesia using ice and pressure, which achieves very good anesthesia in most patients with complete safety. This is what I recommend. There are other ways to achieve cryoanesthesia using cold packs, liquid nitrogen, or ethyl chloride. In my personal experience, most patients who have had Botox injections using both nerve blocks and ice and pressure prefer the ice and pressure method. A simple home freezer ice cube tray may be used to prepare the ice for use in cryoanesthesia for Palmer injections. In order for the ice cubes to be more easily handled by the assistant during the procedure, freeze gauze pads in the ice so that the assistant will be able to maintain a firm grasp on the ice cubes and they will not slip out of the assistant's hands during the procedure. So that the assistant can handle the ice without freezing his or her hands, the assistant should first put on an insulated thermal glove and then the vinyl or latex glove to be used for the procedure. The patient should be comfortably reclining on a surgical table with the hands facing palms up and resting on the firm surface on the table. Place an absorbent towel or drape under the hand since much of the ice will melt during the procedure. The 100 unit vial of Botox is reconstituted with four milliliters of diluent and is loaded into four 1cc tuberculin or insulin syringes. If a syringe with an interchangeable needle is used, be sure that it is a lure lock syringe. Some injectors prefer insulin syringes with a permanently attached needle. This type of syringe has the advantage of minimizing the waste of Botox, which can occur with interchangeable needles as there is always a drop or two wasted in the hub of the needle. Injection sites should be placed as indicated. I usually inject three sites in each distal phalanx, two sites over the middle and proximal phalanges, and about 16 to 20 injections in the palm making sure to cover the medial edge of the palm, which is especially important when writing. 
A total of 45 to 50 individual injections are usually given in each hand. Each injection should consist of about 0.05 to 0.1 milliliter, which should deliver about 1.5 to 2.5 units of Botox at each injection site. Starting with the fingertip, have the assistant place the ice over the distal fingertip and apply firm pressure for at least 7 to 10 seconds at the exact site where the injection will be given. Do it by a watch or count out the seconds verbally. Announcing the countdown for each needle stick allows the patient to anticipate what is happening and avoids what often seems to be a long and uncomfortable silence between injections. It really doesn't hurt. Announcing you need to try it on yourself to believe to distract it. distract the patient, which can also be helpful. After seven to 10 seconds of firm pressure, the assistant should slide the ice to the next anticipated injection site and the Botox should be immediately injected since the anesthesia lasts only for a second. Inject between 0.05 and 0.1 ml at each needle stick to deliver about 1.5 to 2.5 units of Botox in each area. I prefer three sites over the distal phalanx and two injection sites over the middle and proximal phalanges. As the ice applications followed by the injections move up the fingers, the injections should be continued along the palm toward the wrist. I find it convenient to continue the injections in a row from the base of each finger toward the wrist. Injections should be placed every 1 to 1.5 centimeters apart and should be deep dermal or very superficial subcutaneous tissue. When injecting over the thenar muscle at the base of the thumb, be particularly careful that the injections are superficial. Injection or diffusion of the Botox into the muscle may produce weakness in the ability to oppose the thumb. After all the fingers and the palm have been injected, reposition the hand so that the row of injections can be given along the medial edge of the palm, starting at the base of the fifth finger and extending toward the wrist. Injection of this area is especially important since persistent sweating here can be a problem with writing. Okay, see how easy that is? It requires very little in the way of supplies and materials. You don't, nobody believes how much that ice and pressure thing works until you try it on yourself. Uh, but it's, it's a great technique. Okay, let's finish up quickly. Um, uh, my hour is up, but we started a little early, so I do want to finish about uh, some of the other uh, once-in-a-while treatments. And well, first I'll mention ETS, or endoscopic sympathectomy. Now, sympathectomy is a, is a major surgical procedure. It's, it is invasive. Patients are hospitalized. They're in the, they're in the, in the OR. Their lungs is collapsed. They enter the chest cavity with the with the thoroscope, you find the sympathetic nerves and you cut them or clamp them. And its goal is to permanently stop sweating and it does that excellently for the hands. It's about 50-50 for the axilla. The problem is not, does it work or not? The problem is the complications. And although the, the, the acute operative surgical complications are much fewer than they used to be, but can be serious, such as hemothorax and all the anesthesia-related complications, uh, this, uh, it's the long-term complication of compensatory hyperhidrosis that's the problem. So the efficacy is unquestioned. Almost everybody gets permanent cessation of sweating of the hands, 50-50 for the axilla and of no use for any other sweating areas. But here's the problem, is the compensatory sweating. You start sweating more in other areas. 60 to 80% of patients will get this and in some studies that have really been analyzed well, even more than that. Now, when I, tell, when I give this talk to thoracic surgeons and I say that to them, they all jump up and say, I never see that in my patients. It never happens. 
Well, you know why they never see it? Because their patients don't go back to them. That's why they never see it. We all don't ever see our failures because the patients don't come back, no matter what it is that we're, that we're treating. But when you do a retrospective study looking at all cases, you will find this incidence. So I'm going to quote through this quickly because of the time, but um, this is the largest study, of the, a, a retrospective study, a good study of um, uh, 124 patients. But look at, look, first of all, look at the post-operative pneumothorax, 7.3%. 2.5% needed a chest tube for a while. I mean, that's not, that's not nothing. Permanent neurological problems. There's permanent uh, cardiac um, rhythm problems in, in some patients. But here it is. In this particular study, 87% of them had it, and 36% of patients had serious and 6% incapacitating hyperhidrosis. The, the International Hyperhidrosis Society gets letters and emails and calls every week from people who have had this surgery done and are absolutely desperate and are suicidal because of it. They sweat even more in other areas. I can relate two patients of mine, one who had, had it done for her hands. Her hands were, it worked great. In fact, they were so dry she had to use hand cream where they'd crack, but she would sweat so much in her groin and buttocks area that if she didn't wear a diaper, she would sweat through her clothes and leave a sweat ring in the chair. And a teenage boy who had the treat, treatment done would put on a T-shirt and from a, a definitive line down would soak it in five minutes. Incapacitating complications. So I'm, I'm gonna skip the other complications of ETS surgery, just tell you that's a last resort treatment for those patients where everything else has failed. Now there is a role for some local surgery in the axilla, uh, which in, in very small series and, and under uh, very selected conditions can be helpful. I mean, you can excise the whole axillary fault but that's pretty bad, and it leaves huge scarring, sometimes motion, limitation of motion of the arms, and there's a lot of um, nerve and blood vessel damage that's a problem. But this issue of subcutaneous curatage or liposuction to remove sweat glands can be done in some patients. All right, I want to finish up quickly, but I do want to talk about some practical aspects. When you do some, uh, this regarding the billing and coding for hyperhidrosis, primary focal hyperhidrosis, ICD-9 code 705.21, iontophoresis, is a physical therapy code. That's where you'll find it in the CPT code book in the physical therapy section. 97033 is for 15 minutes of iontophoresis. Now you're gonna do 20 minutes at least, and you're gonna probably do two areas. So that's however many 20 minutes you do, or however many 15 minutes you do is the number of units of 97033 to bill for. You can bill with an E&M service if you also do one. Botulinum toxin injections, the proper code to use for axillary hyperhidrosis is 64650, chemo denervation of the axilla. If you're treating the, uh, the skip down to 64999, hands and feet for that one, and 64653 for other areas. And there's reasons why that's there, there those, but I'm not gonna go into that. Uh, if you are using the Botox brand, there's a reimbursement hotline that can be helpful for you and anybody can get this off of the uh, website who wants it. Now there's two ways that you can do botulinum toxin. How many of you do cosmetic Botox? Okay, so if you've got Botox in your office and you want to do it the same way you do cosmetic Botox, you buy the Botox and you bill the patient's insurance for the cost of, of the Botox and your injection and your services of, of injecting. So you buy it, you bill the insurance company, you hope that, that you'll get paid. Of course, you, you would never do it unless you got preauthorized because you're going to be using a whole vial of Botox to treat an underarm and probably two to three vials of Botox. That's 
$1,500 or more worth of Botox to treat somebody's hands. You want to be pretty sure that you're going to get reimbursed for that before you start billing for it, particularly if the patient's going to assume. So because this is a high-cost ser service and a lot of insurance companies don't pay for it readily, try to get pre-authorization for it, and you'd be foolish to do this without having the pre-authorization. Otherwise, you will end up eating the cost of the Botox. But the way I do it is not that way at all. I prescribe Botox like a drug, a written prescription, or an electronic prescription now that we're e-prescribing, for each patient. So this go, goes to their specialty pharmacy. Every day, FedEx brings me boxes of Botox with patients' names on it from their specialty pharmacy that was paid for directly that I don't pay for. So all I do is when I get the, the vial of Botox in the office, we schedule a patient for the injection, they come in, we build them for the injection service, we're not at risk for the cost of the Botox if the patient's insurance doesn't pay for it. All right, let me just finish up with the, the algorithms for treatment. Okay, this is the algorithms for treatment, primary axillary hyperhidrosis. Where do you start? Again, now that was great if somebody just dimmed that projector. If you could dim it one more notch, that would be wonderful. Uh, if um, the particular anxiety-provoking situations, like I talked about, the um, uh, going for the job interview or the presentation, you might want to use systemic treatment. But otherwise, topical antiperspirants. If that doesn't work, if it does work, you can continue as needed. If it doesn't work, Botox injections. Um, and generally, that's that's going to solve the problem. Axillary Botox for almost everybody. When you do Botox injections on somebody, it's like getting up to bat and hitting a home run every time. It's n there's never been anybody I've treated who says it hasn't worked. Now, there are some people who come back in two weeks and say, Doc, it didn't work as well as I thought. And if you do a starch iodide test on those people, you often find there'll be a spot or two that was missed. You go back and you touch them up, they're happy campers. The local sweat gland excision procedures may be in some people. Okay, polymer hyperhidrosis, again, iontophoresis and topical antiperspirants, first line. Either one of those works, they can continue doing it forever. Um, Botulinum toxin injections can work as well. Systemic medications I would try before I would consider ETS surgery. This is the last resort of, uh, of treatment for people with, all, and only for polymer hyperhidrosis, not for any other kind. Plantar on the feet. I often try to talk people out of any kind of treatment for their feet. The feet is probably the, the one that you can you can hide the easiest. Um, so supportive care for, for people with, with feet issues, and that includes um, absorbent foot powders, non-occlusive footwear, cotton socks, et cetera. But in those who want some treatment, just like the hands, iontophoresis and antiperspirants will, are, should be tried and will work in most cases. And if they don't, botulinum and toxin injections, you can consider systemic treatment. There's no role for sympathectomy. Although I will tell you, there are some people who do lumbar sympathectomy for plantar hyperhidrosis. I've heard about it. I've never had a patient who's had it. I can't imagine why it would be any different from the polymer, and so I don't recommend that for at all. We didn't talk at all about craniofacial hyperhidrosis. and ran out of time, but um, that's a real problem for some people. You can use topical antiperspirants, but what works really, really well, the botulinum toxin injections, in the forehead, but you've got to be real careful about where you put it. You don't want it diffusing in their facial muscles because you don't want to loosen or weaken the frontalis muscle. So in conclusion, to wind this up, and I appreciate your spending the last hour and uh, change with me here about this, uh, treatment with people who have hyperhidrosis, easily, easily learned. All of you in this room can do every one of these treatments except for ETS surgery <laughs> that, I, uh, that I mentioned. 
It leads to a greater improvement in people's quality of life than anything else you can do dermatologically for any patient, easily integrated into the practice. Now, you heard that I practice in a, in a large dermatology practice. We have 10 dermatologists, seven PAs, and a nurse practitioner. The PAs do all of this. Okay, this is a perfect procedure for you guys to do. Uh, and it's something which uh, will, will lead to patient satisfaction and people who will love you forever, and it's economically viable. So I'll just end with this, and I want to read it if you can't see this, because I don't know how often you get letters, spontaneous letters from patients who are happy. This is the only thing I get letters about, and I get these periodically. Within a couple of days of treatment, I began to notice a difference. Today, almost two full weeks after treatment, I am essentially sweat-free. As silly as it sounds, it is such a liberating experience not to have to worry anymore about what's going on under my arms. I have more self-confidence, and I wake up each day with a smile on my face. It couldn't come at a better time. I just got accepted into nursing school, and the required scrubs are light blue. That alone would have been a roadblock for me to even apply. I'm completely grateful, and I'm thrilled to be sweat-free and wearing colors other than black. The new black is pink. LOL, thanks again, Stephanie. Okay, well, anybody have any questions? Do we have time for that or do we need to move on? Who's our moderator? Okay, well, that was probably, spent, you spent more time thinking about sweat in the last hour than you ever have in the past. Questions, yes? Good morning, and thank you for your talk. I'm seeing more and more patients have a shorter duration of therapy response for axillary hyperhidrosis with Botox. I was wondering if you're seeing the same and any suggestions you have. Okay, that's a, that's a relatively common complaint, and I think it actually probably really happens some of the time, but I think some of those patients what they really do is they don't, when they started off at a 10, they went down to a zero. You know, they're not happy being a, a five anymore. They just want to be a one or a two. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, how can you keep them down on the farm once they've seen the big city? You know, they, they want to be dry. Um, so the answer to that is, although 50 units is the standard and the labeled dose for each underarm, there are people who need more than 50. And what I do in that situation assuming insurance allows it, I'll increase the dose, and I'll use maybe up to even 100 in one axilla. And you know, some people have a relatively small sweat area, and some people, particularly guys, have huge sweat areas. And it does really take 100 units in some people's underarm. A lot of times, also in women, if you do the starch iodide test and really see, you often will find that the sweat pattern is limited to where the terminal hairs are in the underarm, but not always. And particularly in women, I will often find a little area of the topic lands down almost, almost toward the breast. And if, sometimes missing a little area like that is why people come back with the complaint that it isn't working like it used to. Okay, thank so, you. So my bottom line is use more next time. Okay, And I bet thank it will you. last longer. Yes, ma'am. Um, some of the iontophoresis units come with axillary pads. Are those effective? Okay, good question. Uh, the, and the bottom line is not really. The, the, the idea is it's, it's a sponge on a stick, basically, with, with a sponge that attaches to the electrode. The idea is you soak the sponges, you put them under the arms, and you hold them in there. The problem with that is it's almost impossible to get a uniform contact from a sponge to the entire skin surface of the armpit. So when you don't have uniform contact, of course, when you're in water, it's completely uniform contact. When, it, when you don't have uniform contact, what you're going to have is you're going to have more current in areas, some areas than others, so you're more likely to get a little localized redness and even a little bit burning. 
But if you don't have contact, you're not going to get effect. So in general, ion interference for axillary areas is not very effective. So that's the simple answer is no, but it's something to try if patients really either can't afford Botox or can't get insurance coverage for it, but they could find, I would try it, but my success rate is low because of that reason. It's trying to get a, flat, it's trying to get a curved surface in contact with a flat. It just doesn't work. Okay, thank you. Okay, sure. All right, well, again, thank you all for your attention.